Welcome everybody to the Wright County GOP podcast. As usual, uh, everything we discuss here in this episode is solely our opinion, not representative of the general or the executive board, but I'm not going to dilly-dally around any longer. We are incredibly privileged to be given some time by an extremely busy man, Dr. Scott Jensen. Uh, he is going to talk to us. I'm going to throw him some questions as usual, and uh, I'm guessing he's going to take us through a pretty fascinating journey over the last three years. Uh, doctor, how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Daniel, for having me on. Not a problem at all. Uh, at age, what, 55 or so, you're still getting after it, right? I turned 69 in oh. a few months. <laughs> Nah, I don't believe it. I don't believe it one bit. <laughs> I love it. Um, so I'm just going to get right into it because, as I said, this man's time is incredibly precious and important. Do you, uh, would you like to give us an update on the Ellison uh, lawsuit? I'd be glad to. People have asked me, why are you doing this, Scott? And I'm doing it for several reasons. First and foremost, my lawsuit really isn't about a single person, a family doctor in Watertown, Minnesota. It's really about what happened over the last three years whereby government in ways we'd never seen before was able to creep into our lives, intrude into our lives, take away our rights, and seemingly throw the Constitution under the bus. I've been investigated six times by the Board of Medical Practice and I've been led to believe by the board that not one of those situations has ever been from a patient of mine, anybody who's ever received a health care service from me. Rather, it's people who don't like my politics. I get that. We have differences of opinions. The whole world does. But the fifth investigation was allowed by the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice to hover over the last 11 months of that campaign for governor. It had an impact, potentially, on the campaign. It gave the opposing party the opportunity to paint me more readily as extreme. And how could Dr. Scott Jensen be good for Minnesota if he's been investigated five times? Never mind the fact that I'd never been investigated prior to pandemic. I'd never had any kind of blemish. I was a celebrated family physician of the year in 2016. I'd been and a recipient of a Bush Fellowship to do uh, a study of my choice. I was one of the top 15 residents in an award program by Mead Johnson in 1982. I've had a wonderful career, and I've been flattered and humbled by that. But this time around, if you're a hairstylist and you need approval from a state agency to stay open every couple of years, that agency can be weaponized against you. If you're a restaurant owner or a bar owner, if you're a nurse who owns a home health service, if you're a dentist, if you're a doctor or you're a lawyer, if you're an auto mechanic, anybody that has any, if you will, dependency on the government allowing something could have this happen to them. And that's why I've said over and over again, Daniel, uh, we've been played. If, you know, if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. Part of the reason I think that I probably am a reasonable pivot point for this case is because I am, if you will, for whatever reason, 
in a position where I have some notoriety. I was in the Senate. I ran for governor. Uh, I have a, a lot of social media followers. So if I can help get the word out there and stand up for all of us, that matters. I don't want to be investigated again. I don't like it. And I want the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice to stop it. I don't like it that the Attorney General came in on the last investigation and the correspondence is coming on their letterhead and they are now are the ones providing legal services for the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice. So an update on our cases is I have filed a suit against the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice in federal district court. And what we're basically saying there is that there is a line between freedom of speech and on the other side of the line, professional conduct as it relates to the practice of medicine. That line is important, and we're asking the courts to help draw it with more precision and more boldness because I feel like my right to speak on the Senate floor or in front of an audience running for governor, my freedom of speech was compromised, and that has to stop. That's the federal case. The case against Keith Ellison has been filed in state district court. And the Attorney General's office has told us that they do not plan on complying with the Minnesota Data Practices Act, which is a law that allows me to look at emails and documents and correspondence that talk about Scott Jensen. We have been informed that the Attorney General's office will turn over some of the documents, but they're not going to turn them all over because they're concerned that if they do that, we might talk about them, and if we talk about them, their staff might get harassing phone calls. Well, gee whiz, too bad, Daniel. I'm, I'm so sorry that, you know, uh, that they might feel like they're going to uh, have to potentially put up with some harassing phone calls. I have put up with harassing phone calls, death threats, and everything else for the last three and a half years, as well as Minnesota Board of uh, Medical Practice Investigations. So Keith Ellison does not have the right to decide whether or not he's going to comply with the law. So we're going after him on that. Do you know when um, a decision would likely be coming your way? Is there any? I think that what will happen first is I'm going to guess the Attorney General's office will file for some dismissal. They'll say that uh, you know it isn't pertinent, it isn't relevant, yada, yada, yada. And uh, so we're preparing literally every, every week uh, for what kinds of legal maneuvers we'll have to do to keep the suit in play, but I don't think anything's going to happen fast, and I think it's going to be uh, a couple of months before we, we really get to the, the grist of anything, but uh, I just think that this is so important, and based on the response that we received from around the world, but particularly within the United States and within Minnesota, we had a give, send, go initiative to do some uh, crowdfunding, and the response was incredibly impressive with people uh, literally stepping up the table and within a week or two uh, putting $150,000 on the table. Wow, that's awesome. Nice. Um, I wanted to have you take us back to, I believe it was the first video that you posted where you got, I believe you had a letter from the hospital. Um, if you could, it was, I believe in your video you, you uh, alluded to it being a very unique um, would you pinpoint as obviously very likely that being the moment where everything kind of changed in your life? Um, and if you could go back, would you do it again? But to recap, um, 
Yeah, take us back to that first video you posted on Facebook. I think it was, right? I did um, an important video in April, and I did an important one on the July 4th weekend. Both of those were in 2020. I remember vividly where I was and when I heard the news that John Kennedy had been assassinated on November 22nd, 1963. I think for a lot of people, they also have a recollection poignantly and specifically where they were when they heard that 9-11 had occurred. I think for many of us, with the pandemic having been drawn out over three years, we'll have moments that we remember very vividly. It may not be the same moment for everybody, but for me, it was reading the email in my office on April 3rd, a Friday, from the Minnesota Department of Health with a link to the CDC, whereby I was, it felt like I was being coached to utilize COVID-19 as the cause of death on death certificates. And it went into some detail and it made some comments. And one of the comments it made was more often than not in situations where you thought or assumed that COVID was involved or contributed, they would expect the cause of death to be COVID. Toward the end of this one page email, perhaps one and a quarter page, they said this. They said, if you believe that COVID-19 may have been a contributing cause, go ahead and put it down as a cause of death. But if it's something else like asthma or emphysema that you believe to be a contributing cause, put that in part two where you've been putting it for the last 35 years. That just didn't stack up. I felt at that time like I was being told emphysema, asthma, influenza, any of those, put it in part two. It's not as important. But if it's COVID and you're not even certain, you didn't even do a test. Don't put it down as a contributing cause. Put it down as a cause of death. See, a lot of folks, Daniel, don't realize that what we're supposed to do when it comes to a death certificate is we're supposed to try to identify the initiating event that led to a person's death. So let's just take a for instance. Let's say tomorrow, Wednesday, I have a heart attack. And uh, two weeks later, I learned that the heart attack was so damaging that my heart muscle can't keep up with the blood volume necessary to be pumped. So I now am in congestive heart failure. And over the next couple of months, I learned that I'm not a candidate for a transplant. There's not much that can be done and that my heart is giving away and I'm going to die of ultimately heart failure. Say I go on hospice. And I say, okay, you know, the end is near. I'm going to go on hospice. Our focus is going to be on comfort, dignity, having the chance to say my goodbyes. And whatever time I have left, I want it to be high quality, as high quality as it could be. In that situation, if in the last 48 hours of my life, I'm on hospice, I get exposed to someone with COVID. And I'm already coughing a little bit because of the congestive heart failure. And on the last day, as in the days before, I continue to cough. It felt to me like what we were being told if I died that day, that we could put down on the death certificate that COVID-19 was the cause of death. That's not right. 
the way that death certificate should read is the immediate cause of death you could argue about. You could say it was COVID because it tipped me over, but I didn't have a positive test. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't put COVID. I would put the immediate cause of death was probably respiratory failure because of congestive heart failure, because of the heart attack, because of coronary artery disease. The underlying cause of death is the bottom line, the last one I mentioned. That's what the Federal Registrar for Diseases will hold on to. That death was caused by coronary artery disease. Every year we have about 650,000 Americans die of coronary artery disease or something related to it. In the contributing condition box, I might put something like high cholesterol or maybe high blood pressure. Or maybe if I wanted to, I could say, well, COVID did enter the picture, put it under contributing conditions. But it certainly was not the initiating event that led to my demise. That was what was happening. So I'll never forget April 3rd, Friday morning, 2020, reading that in my heart sinking. Did you, did you have any idea that that video would become so controversial? I had none. I honestly thought, silly me, I honestly thought that, because I was sitting in the Senate then, I was a senator, I was the vice chair of health and human services, I thought the Department of Health might well get on the phone, give me a call and say, hey Scott, you make a good point here, how do you think we could fix this? Nothing. I waited for that call, never got it. I reached out to the Department of Health, no response. No matter that I'm in the Senate, no matter that I'm vice chair of the health and human services, I didn't even get a response. I had no idea that I would come to be this notorious whistleblower. And then two and a half months later when nothing has happened from the Department of Health, and now I'm told by the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice that my license is being investigated for the first time in my life, my first time in my career. That was when I did a video where I said, listen, I'm not going to try to hide this. I'm angry about it. It's not fair. It's never happened to me before. And I put that video out, and that went to some, I think, 25 million people. <laughs> that, wow. Um, oh, I had a question, and I just lost it. But maybe it'll come well, back. Well, you had asked me earlier, and I didn't respond, so let me just chase your last question okay. a little bit. You asked me, would I do it again? Oh, yeah, there you go. And <clears throat> I don't want to present myself as something I'm not. There's many times I've thought of the, uh, the Old Testament book, Jonah, where Jonah was told by God, I need you to go to Nineveh. They got some problems there, and you're going to have to give a pretty unpopular message. And Jonah says, no thanks, I'm running to the Mediterranean. And then the whale got in the way and spit him back on landing in of going to Nineveh, and it was tough duty. I sometimes ask myself, would I have been like Jonah if I had known? And I can't say that I wouldn't have been. If someone had told me three and a half years ago that my life would look like it does now, that I would have to absorb the slings and arrows that I've had to absorb, I might have said, she's Mary, to my wife, maybe we should move to Africa for a few years. Um, but on the other hand, now that the pandemic is, if you will, sort of evaporated, perhaps that's not the best word, but I think because of that, and I look back, <laughs> I, I think that, I hope I would do it again. I hope I would do it again if I had the foreknowledge. But I think so many things in life, we don't get to see the whole picture. We just get to see it bit by bit. 
And that's probably the most merciful way for our Creator to allow our lives to unfold. Because if we saw the whole thing, we probably couldn't handle it. I mean, if you look at a 30-year span of life and you see all the pains and all the glories, all the gladnesses and all the sadnesses, it's, it'd be a pretty big task to try to absorb that at the front end without getting dispirited. Mm -hmm. So would I do it again? I don't know, but I would hope I would. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, a very good answer. Um, <clears throat> in sticking with the COVID, I'm going to go through a, a quick little story, and I would like your take on this. And you being far smarter than I am, I may be totally ridiculous in how uh, I've played this out in my mind. But I was talking to somebody last summer, um, and I brought up how the schools closed down. And I said that we basically knew from the beginning, from the countries that got hit really hard, Italy, right? Italy got hit really hard in the beginning from what information was coming out of China that you could have, you know, <laughs> taken with a grain of salt, obviously, but I believe there was still some information coming out of China that children were not being affected as much. Um, yet the school still closed down. And in this conversation, the person that I was talking to said, we did not know that and that you needed six months to a year's worth of data to be able to know that. And I started thinking, and, and I went through this scenario, and I'll go through it as quick as I can, but essentially what that was to me was one side was saying, children are not being affected. The other side said, yes, they are, or we don't know that. Month two, the children are not being affected. One side says, the other side, we don't know that. Let's fast forward and pick a, a month in the middle. Month nine, children are not being affected. The other side says, we don't know that. Month 10, children are not being affected. One side, the other side says, children are not being affected. That seemed to play out over and over again during the whole pandemic where <laughs> something like that would come up and when the data you know, the science changed. I don't think science changes, does it? It's the interpretation of the science that changes. Uh, I just would love your take on if that is how, I, how your take on that whole we needed six months to a year to know when a whole lot of us were saying, get the kids in school. It's, it's an interesting question. I think, in fairness, it was the end of February where the first COVID death was identified in America in 2020. And in March, in Minnesota, we had our first lockdown start on March 17th, it was St. Patrick's Day. Two weeks to flatten the curve and not overwhelm the healthcare facilities was the mantra. The two weeks passed and they were extended. People were frightened. Everybody wanted to do the right thing. Everybody wanted to do what they were supposed to do to mitigate the impact of this pandemic. But literally, in that month of April and May, we started seeing flip-flopping. And we saw science getting sacrificed at the altar of fear. For instance, February. I think 
Tony Fauci and Mike Osterholm don't need to wear masks. Save the masks for the healthcare workers. The noble lie. Two months later, <laughs> wear masks. What kind of mask? Any kind of mask. I don't care. Well, wearing masks that have pores, openings in the fabric that are five microns, 50 times larger than the COVID particle? How would, how would a, a filter like that work? I mean, if you had a, a fishing net that had gaps in it, 12 inches by 12 inches, and you caught a four-inch sunfish, I don't think you're going to get that sunfish into the boat. Mm-hmm. And I made comments like this. But I think we knew by the end of May that the infection fatality rate for children was particularly children with no underlying uh, immune uh, problems. It was, I think the recovery rate was 99.99997. And we also knew that in Minnesota, we were nation leading almost in terms of the number of elderly that were dying, in terms of the percentage of our deaths. Mm -hmm. And the great, great, great majority of them, I think at one time it was over 90%, uh, were in facilities, nursing homes, assisted living, senior living. So we had that data literally by the end of May. So if you wanted to be extremely charitable, you'd say, okay, March 17th to the end of May, that's two and a half months. Kids had gotten locked out of schools for two and a half months. At that point in time, we did not need six or 12 more months of data or analysis. We knew then, and then over the next month or two, it became increasingly clear, as you mentioned, as we had a chance to look at international hotspots, such as Italy. We looked at places like Belgium. We looked at Sweden. Uh, We looked at the individual states in the United States and saw some performing better than others. But everywhere we looked, the kids were not, if you will, dropping like flies. Mm -hmm. There was not this big fear. Instead, there was this, the children are spreading it. They're asymptomatic, but they're, they're carriers. Well, that didn't prove out. It was in, I think, September or October of 2020 where the Great Barrington Declaration was written. And that was a document that was extremely thoughtful and measured and balanced. And it talked about targeted protection. And you cannot do what you're doing because you are creating so many problems you are blinding yourself to. And now, unfortunately, two and a half years later, we're seeing it all. I mean, we're seeing the mental health with the kids. We're seeing lowest reading and math scores in 13-year-olds in three decades. Uh, we're, we're seeing the amount of physical sexual abuse that took place because our normal reporting channels for kids enduring that kind of horror was gone. It was demolished. It was fractured. And yet... Minnesota and many other states continued to lock down the school year of 2020-2021, almost the whole year. People didn't seem to realize how many days of school kids were missing. So did we need six to 12 months of data in order to make an appropriate analysis? No. But I would also say this. We've never done a vaccination program in 11 months or nine months, whatever you want to call it. Our vaccination programs generally are somewhere around three to five years. That's that's the length it takes. Our influenza vaccine programs, which have been pretty well greased in terms of a pathway, even there we have these scientific studies looking to see what the likely strain is and how we should create the, if you will, the flu shot. So 
I, I think that this person who shared that story with you, I, I think they're trying to come up with a defense for what we did. And I think we'd be better off if we would just repent and acknowledge we made a huge mistake because we hurt the kids and the kids don't get a mulligan like in golf where you get to hit an extra ball off the first tee. There is no mulligan here for the kids. These are real chips. They've been damaged and they're not going to catch up. How about the the part that seemed to play out over and over again in multiple different areas of the whole COVID scenario where one side, namely the right, would say something, it would get it would it would be uh, claimed as you name it misinformation. They're they're you know they're crazy, and then it would end up. Sometimes you probably know more than me, but it would end up being acknowledged as true, and then there just really wouldn't be an acknowledgement that they they had it right from the beginning. Instead, it was the science changed or. I think, I mean, almost Orwellian, like just memory hold to, to basically say, well, that, you know, no, that, that never happened. <laughs> you, you guys never said that. It was, it was now us that just said it. I did a video probably about two, three weeks ago, Daniel, saying, red alert, we better be paying attention because medical articles are being withdrawn uh, from social media platforms and will not be as readily available to be reviewed, read, scrutinized, digested. And this is a huge issue. This is sort of what you're getting at. Almost Orwellian. They, they want to rewrite history and they want to write it in a favorable manner to them. And that means they remove anything that might be held against them. They remi- they'll remove things uh, that, uh, that embarrass them. Uh, but the things that they think they had right, they'll put those out there over and over again. And anybody who differs will be considered a, a contrarian. And they don't use the word contrarian. They use the word conspiracy. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a society so rapidly bastardize two words as we did with misinformation and disinformation. The difference between these two words is night and day. Misinformation is someone's belief or truth on a Monday changing on a Wednesday so that by Friday they they believe something else. Expand the time frame a little bit and look at my profession in medicine. Look at all the times we've changed our minds. Look at us saying, don't eat eggs for heaven's sakes. If you don't want high cholesterol and heart attacks, don't eat eggs. Until we stop saying that and said, oh yeah, you can eat eggs. How about the aspirin? Take an aspirin a day, keep the doctor away. Until we didn't. Oh, yeah, that really didn't work so well. We were actually causing more people to have bleeding in their bowels than they were having heart attacks saved. I think that misinformation is simply information that someone thought was reliable and it turns out to not be. That's the process of science. Disinformation is a totally different animal. Totally different animal. Disinformation is a deliberate use of half-truths, or misleading truths or actual falsehoods to deceive. And we've got people saying, well, he, he did disinformation, he did misinformation. Well, make up your mind because it matters. Did I, was I guilty of misinformation at times? Darn right I was. I remember when someone asked me on one of the podcasts, he said, well, where do you think it started? This 
this uh, COVID-19 virus. And I said, I think it was probably a, a spontaneous reassortment in nature involving different species and, you know, a, a wet lab, right, a, a wet market right there enhanced the possibility. And uh, I said, I, I just can't imagine that it would be from a lab leak. I mean, the, you know, these level five laboratories are just amazing in terms of their safeguards. And now uh, I think I was wrong. I think it was a lab leak. I think the FBI and the Department of Energy and the former head of CDC, Robert Redfield, have all come out and indicated that that makes the most sense. I think Congress has had some hearings on that as well. So was I guilty of spreading disinformation regarding where the virus started? Heavens no. That was misinformation. I and millions of other people thought that it started probably in a spontaneous reassortment, but now it's looking like it hasn't. And I don't think the jury's totally in. I think it's maybe a a 95% plus probability or something the way it looks right now. But that's totally different than disinformation. I think we received some disinformation, honestly. And I hate to say this because I don't like to accuse people uh, without really having all the facts. But I really resent it when Tony Fauci said that he was not involved or the NIH was not involved with gain of function research. And he went on to say that they were not trying to make this virus more virulent or more transmissible. That's an interesting response to the question because he took two pieces, two mechanisms as to how you do gain of function research. Make a virus kill more people or make it transmit easier. Those would be two ways that you would accomplish gain of function. But there's another one and it's very damned important. And it's trying to alter the target of the virus so that instead of that virus going after people 70 years and older with numerous medical problems, have that target people between 20 and 40. Knock the snot out of a society or a country. Try to get the COVID virus to do what the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic did when it went after 20 to 40-year-olds. So many soldiers survived the war and died on the way home. That's gain of function. I think Dr. Fauci knew that. I think his name was on some of the checks, probably, that went from the NIH and the uh, or the uh, national association that he ran, the NIAID or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I think that that may well have been a deliberate effort to deceive his audience. Now, I, I apologize to Dr. Fauci if, if I'm not being fair. I'm trying to be fair. But I think when he took a shortcut answer to what gain of function is, not thinking that he would get by, he could skate by with that answer. That was not an adequate answer. He was missing a big part of what gain of function is. Gain of function, if you can target a population that you want to target, that's that's huge impact, and that's gain of function. Yeah, it's terrifying, too. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, okay, let's, uh, we'll get off COVID for a bit. Um, when you stopped by our BPOU meeting, I believe in May, I think in, if for our right county, yep, in May, uh, you said something that I thought was incredibly well put. Um, and you talked about how we need to stay relevant, the GOP and the, the right and the Republican Party. But if 
we can't be relevant if we don't win elections. Um, and I took that as to mean like we would all love to be absolutely headstrong on everything, but you can't do that. And you have to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, and, and maybe you've got a better way to put it. Um, but you almost have to kind of pick and choose which ones which topics you're just going to say, no, this is what we need to absolutely stay strong on. And we may have to give a little on this one, because if we don't win the election, we're going to have we're going to be very weak on everything because we don't have any power at all to help or uh, influence legislation. But yeah, ex- go uh, explain, explain that more. I think your comment and question beg an upstream question. If we're going to win, we're going to have to be relevant. The question even above that is, why should we be relevant? Why does it matter? There has to be some underlying ethos, some set of a core convictions that represent a person's moral compass. My moral compass is different than anyone else's. We all have our own unique moral compass. But as a conservative, I see the word conservative coming from the Latin word conservare, which means to safeguard. And then the question is, safeguard what? Well, I think I want to safeguard the founding documents that gave birth to this country because the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights has been a a remarkable uh, set of guardrails for us to navigate 250 years and be the country that has stood more for freedom than any other country during my lifetime, to be sure. So I want to honor the Founding Fathers documents, those, if you will, that recipe for our survival. That's hugely important. I want to honor my God. I think that our country was founded in a very big way on freedom of religion. That was huge. I think we're losing that. I think that I have a strong sense that I have to, as a conservative, recognize that government can be an evil force in our lives or a force for good. And I think it's a more of a force for good when it's seen as a safety net for people who are down and out and need help, but not as some grand puppeteer putting in place a nanny state. I think that the United States is founded on the notion that majority rules and minorities retain rights. If a majority becomes a minority, the part, the new party that's majority doesn't get to strip the minority of its rights. They still have all the rights. I think that we have to honor life not just at the beginning, but at the end, and those people who live in the shadows of life, who never are able to get out of a wheelchair, who will never know the ease whereby you can empty your bladder or bowel and get moving and be playing ball with your grandkids within a few minutes, where something like excreting is an hour-long process, and it happens five times a day, 365 days a year. We need to recognize that honoring life means we honor those people's lives and try to make their lives better. And I think we have to recognize that we have to be the ones who protect the children. And we're failing terribly at that. 
We've got things going on in grade schools that we would never have imagined. We've got people hypersexualizing our children with questions and notions that the kids don't need to be thinking about. They can just go out and play ball, have fun, learn how to read and write and ride a bicycle and do all that. Those are the things that I think as a conservative, that makes up my moral compass. Well, if we pin all of our hopes on just abortion and we lose 30 statewide elections in a row and it looks like we'll continue to lose because that issue is so pregnant with potency, no pun intended, but if we let that happen, it's almost like we've allowed the Roe v. Wade reversal to be like the Trojan horse. It comes rolling in a gift to the conservatives. Here you are. Roe v. Wade's been overturned. And we say, well, they finally gave up. They gave us a Trojan horse. But inside that Trojan horse, after the immediate celebratory activities took place, out came the hard liberal. And they said, we are going after you. And with that one issue, they are winning on getting God excised out of our society. Many people would say that there's a battle between good and evil. We're losing that battle. We're not protecting the children. Government has become immense with arms that reach into our lives. Whether you want to be tracked by your cell phone or not, you don't even know if the government's doing it. These are the things that I think an awful lot of people say, that's problematic. And we're losing, losing, losing because of that. In Minnesota, there's only two real metrics we have to think about when it comes to abortion. Personally, I am powerfully pro-life. But I also recognize that the great majority of Minnesotans do not believe that abortion should be banned. And the great majority of Minnesotans, I believe, from what I've seen, do not believe that late-stage pregnancies should be electively aborted. Somewhere in between there, there's going to have to be a spot where we say 10 weeks, 12 weeks, 15 weeks. And I just don't think, Daniel, that politicians are especially equipped to figure that out. So I think we should ask our legislature, put together a constitutional amendment to our constitution in Minnesota and put it before the people and let three, four million Minnesotans decide. And I suspect if they craft measured balanced language, it'll pass with many both people on both sides of the aisle supporting it. But if they don't, then it'll be defeated. But I just, I think that the conservatives, we have to realize that we are losing our way and we're losing on all the issues. And I think there was just a study the other day that came out, I think it was maybe the Pew Research Program. They came out and said that they, they found that the number of people that said they will vote on that issue alone is more than it's ever been. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> so that issue is not letting go of its potency. When I was running for governor, I was told to shut up about abortion, don't talk about it. I, I made some comments under the umbrella of Roe v. Wade that were typical political rhetoric. And there was always a backstop there because Roe v. Wade was there. So if liberals made you know, sort of pushed the envelope on some of their comments or conservatives did. It didn't matter so much because Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. And in Minnesota, we had Dovey Gomez, which was even more insurance of access. Mm -hmm. 
But once Roe v. Wade was reversed, it changed things, and uh, and that's all on me. I mean, I I was uh, I was less than thoughtful. I was just checking the box. Here's my position on abortion. Let's move on to these other issues of inflation and crime and education. And uh, I made a mistake. Well, and that is not something uh, you hear. And I would imagine that people would like to hear more of politicians saying, my bad. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that was another thing at our meeting that I was just uh, that I loved hearing you say I, I made a few mistakes because you don't hear that anymore yeah. ever yeah if you're <laughs> not willing, sides. yeah i made a mistake uh, uh there were times i made ill-advised comments I, I received information from people but i didn't have the time to corroborate them if you don't have time to corroborate it don't say it i was i, I mean here's another mistake i think the republican party is making uh we just had the decision from the supreme court today uh, I think it was today or, or yesterday, late last night. But um, it was a gerrymandering case in North Carolina. And we have a conservative Supreme Court in the federal courts. And that conservative Supreme Court came down on the Republicans and said, no, you don't get to gerrymander these districts like you did. They're, the 21 maps for North Carolina Congressional District some people called it, it looked like a salamander. I thought it looked like sort of a, an asymmetric hourglass where you got sort of a big area, then it comes down to an isthmus, and then it expands into another area. But the bottom line was it was done purely for politics, purely to try to gain a seat that if you're really interested in having congressional districts based on community overlay and topographical features or business industry features or kids or populations. If you really wanted to do it where you're trying to allow people uh, a certain congruity in both how they live and also how they connect with their congressperson, I, I don't think we should be doing that. And I thought that was quite a remarkable, uh, it was six to three. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Kavanaugh, and Barrett, uh, both relatively new Supreme Court justices, both voted uh, with all the, the, the liberals on the court, mm-hmm. uh, along with, uh, so there were six, it was a six to three mm-hmm. vote. And I think the Republicans, we have got to be better at this. We've got, to, we've got to own up to the fact that we make mistakes and sometimes we get carried away. And uh, we might say, well, we did it because they did it first. Well, at some point in time, we're gonna have to stop that. Mm-hmm. Back to COVID briefly. Um, you're, I'm, I'm guessing you're aware this. This came up with Eric Lucero and Walter Hudson uh, on Friday when I talked to them for quite a while. But it got me thinking. I'm assuming you're aware or remember uh, vaguely the Stanford prison experiment, uh, where students signed up for an experiment. Half were prison guards. Half were inmates. And they and I research. I looked up on it a little more because I had to refresh myself, uh, being the psychology degree from a long, long time ago. <laughs> uh, but it was stopped after six days because it basically just got out of control. Like there was abuse going on, and these were potentially people that were friends before this. Do you think that COVID taught us that society's default is possibly like? the Stanford prison experiment where you have groups of people that are arbitrarily given power over, you know, the masks, the flight attendant, the 
person in uh, Menards or Home Depot that's stocking a shelf now gets to basically say, put that mask on or you're out of here. I mean, it's a scary thought, but it certainly felt for three years like society's default is somewhat similar to that experiment. I've always thought that one of the most illuminating books I've ever read on how does society evolve or default as it moves along? How would it how would it look? And I think we'd want to do it without someone on high giving someone power over another. To me, that would be a slanted beginning to any kind of experiment we arrange to try to understand how would society evolve. I thought William Golding, when he wrote his book, Lord of the Flies, Mm -hmm. it really hit on it. He took a ship that was shipwrecked, and the only people that survived were children. I don't remember the approximate number of the kids, but... I mean, Ralph was one, I think, and there were several. I think maybe Piggy. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I think that if you see the evolution of community power bases that took place in that book, I think that's what you saw. And I think we saw that with COVID. I think we saw boiling up from different pockets, uh, control places. And I think your question is a good one in the sense that it was as if some were some people were bequeathed with sort of power from the get-go while someone else was given nothing. And so you had an automatic skew of who mattered the most. That certainly helped create a narrative that could be, if you will, made to be emblematic of what you're supposed to think. And so it got just tremendous traction, took off like a bat out of heck. And there's anything else, any other narrative uh, was like trying to march in quicksand and you're being beat down at every turn, regardless of the fact that you could have asked some extremely important questions. If they were questions that someone didn't want to have to respond to, the questions were literally um, just dispensed with. So I I think it's an interesting one. I think that between William Golding and George Orwell, I think think they really prophesied pretty well for what happened in COVID. Yeah, definitely. Do we know what the final death rate is for COVID? And obviously it changes between ages, but I I, I mean, that, that was kind of the subject that... It was the reason for it all. Yes, it was. If you look at our typical influenza, infectious fatality rates, the IFRs, infectious fatality mm-hmm. rate. And people need to understand the difference between CFR and IFR. CFR is case fatality rate. Infectious is infectious fatality rate. A case, however you define it, will generally be your case fatality rate. So you have a certain number of deaths. Say there, this number of deaths is due to COVID. The rate would be divided by the di- that, well, those who died, and it would be divided by the number of cases. But the cases might be more stringently determined. In other words, instead of having just cough or shortness of breath, two cardinal symptoms, 
because the third one would be fever. You only needed two out of three, and you did not need a positive test. But if they say, well, but you have to have both symptoms and exposure, however you define a case, that number is going to be a lot smaller than the infection fatality rate because it's possible that you were maybe with a family of five and uh, one person was diagnosed with COVID and identified as a case, but the other four of you all came down with similar things and never went and got checked because you knew what you needed to do and you knew that it was viral and that you were in good health and that, you know, you were going to, you know, the odds are terrifically in your favor that you're going to get past this and move on. And so all of a sudden you might only count one of your family as a case, but all five would be counted in the infection fatality rate. That's why the data was out there. So for every case, there's probably 10 infections. So the initial case fatality rate of 1%, scarier than the devil. That's a big number. That's one out of 100. 100 people get the disease, one dies. That's too much. Mm-hmm. We're typically used to 0.1 or 0.2 with influenza epidemics. We're one out of 1,000. And uh, I can give you a little context for that in a minute, but that's why so many epidemiologists said we have to recognize that the number of cases has to probably be multiplied by 10 or 15. And early on, there were a couple of docs in uh, Santa Monica, California, that did this study. And what they found was for every case, there were indeed about 10 infections. And you could do that based on antibody studies, where you do antibodies on every, then you can find out who actually had them. So that was really important because you're right, the, the whole thing got jazzed up in terms of fear tremendously because people said, oh, the, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. It's, I think a lot of people don't realize, Daniel, that in America every year, one out of 100 people die. I mean, that, that's an amazing number. I mean, go down to the, the restaurant tonight and uh, have a burger with 99 other people and recognize that one out of 100 of those people, one of those people will be dead before the year's out, mm-hmm. statistically. And, I mean, we have 300 million people in this country, 325, mm-hmm. 328, whatever it is, 300 million, and we have 3 million die every year. That's one out of 100. When you look at it that way, that's saying one out of 100 people will die. So if we have an influenza pandemic that comes through and it takes out 0.1% infectious fatality rate, that means one out of 1,000 people would die. You say, well, one out of 100 dies across the board. One out of 1,000? Yeah, that can happen. But if all of a sudden you're told, no, it's not 0.1, the, the, the fatality rate and it's poorly defined, it was 2 or 3% potentially. Now you're talking 3 out of 100, 1 out of 33. For every 30 people that get this, one's going to die. You know, are we talking about the bubonic plague or whatever? That's what went on. We had people that should have known better literally quoting the case fatality rate as if that was the important statistic, while traditionally we look at the IFR, the infection fatality rate, to determine what or how severe uh, a pandemic or an epidemic was. And I think that was critically important. I was just reading an article by Scott Atlas the other day out of Stanford, Mm -hmm. and he was sharply critical that when he entered the White House to be an advisor, he was stunned that there were people in the room that did not understand the difference between the case fatality rate and the infection fatality rate. And he went home and he asked his kids about it, and they didn't understand it as well. And that renewed and rejuvenated Scott Atlas's determination to step aside from what he had been doing and said he has to devote more time, more energy to get the word out because clearly we needed people to understand this. Because if we let them understand it, we could push aside some of that fear. Mm -hmm. But that fear-mongering literally 
uh, it it won the day. It won the day for two years. Yeah. It kept the kids out of school. It kept the sick nursing home patients in the nursing homes dying alone. It locked down businesses that had no businesses, no business. The government had no business locking down these these restaurants and, and pubs and clinics. And we had so many people stop. I just had a patient in earlier today. She said, when COVID hit, I shut down. I haven't seen you for three years, doc. I said, I'm aware of it. She said, I stopped my chemo. I hope the cancer isn't back. I said, well, we'll have to figure it out. But this happened across the board. Yeah. Man. Uh, government, do you have another run in you, do you think? <laughs> I'm a strong faith-based person, and I never saw myself in politics. I'm a family doctor in Watertown, and I did 10 years of school board in the 1990s, and I sort of thought that was my gig, my contribution. So in 2015, when I was recruited to run for a Senate seat that was open, I had just gotten back with my wife from Israel. We'd spent 12 days following the steps of Jesus over in Israel. Vacation of a lifetime. Incredible. But after a two-month period of being recruited, Mary and I did a lot of soul-searching, a lot of praying, and we decided that we were being called to do that. We thought that that was it. In 2019, I announced I wasn't running for re-election to the Senate. Mary was going to have numerous surgeries. She had some health issues. And then um, COVID hit. And in that first nine months of COVID, I ended up, for whatever reason, having a tremendously enlarged profile. And again, we were starting to be recruited to run for governor, and we said no for quite a while. But we kept praying, and we finally decided that we were being called to do this. Could that happen again? Sure, it could. But I'm not young. I'm 69. And uh, the most important thing is that we get a thoughtful conservative running for governor that can win and that we can bring a balance into our society so that once again we can elevate our faith, the wisdom of our founding fathers, the importance of family, that we really get freedom. We get health freedom. We get parental rights as freedom. Uh, We've seen some of these things that we've taken for granted absolutely decimated. That can't happen. Uh, we absolutely have to recognize that the majority rules, but minorities do retain rights. And ultimately, we've got to get back to protecting children's innocence because we're doing nothing long-term that's good for our children of tomorrow. Having them exposed to uh, sexual notions and ideas before they're eight years old, uh, I just can't get my arms around this being anything positive. I'm sorry. No, I agree. Um Two last ones for you because we've gone a little bit over, but obviously uh, you're a wonderful person and you're being <laughs> incredibly generous. And these are uh, a slightly slightly more lighthearted. I always try to, or at least lately, end on some lighter-hearted. Uh, I suppose this one's maybe not, but did you lose any patience? Are you allowed to mm. during your, <laughs> your yes. big profile? Yes. Well, I had death threats during yeah. it. And... Uh, and I did lose some patients, and some of it, it hurt because some of these patients, uh, it was clear. I mean, they um, they were disappointed in maybe the level of activity that I was participating in politics or maybe something I said. But for every patient I lost, I had 20 patients that wanted to have me be their doctor. So I ended up having to literally close my practice, which I'd never done in my 30 seven, 38 years, whatever it is, of medical practice. So 
I, uh, I had to stop taking new patients other than grandfathering patients in through maybe uh, family members and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we, we lost some patients, but we gained probably uh, 10 to 20 times as many. And, wow. uh, and I think the reason that we gained them was not because anybody necessarily thought that I was the diagnostic wizard of the profession. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it was more to do with patients really wanted to go to a place where they felt that they would be honored and that their right to be their own best champion of their health would be preserved and and lifted. And I think a lot of patients during COVID felt that they were abandoned or betrayed by the hospital system or the clinic or the doctor or provider that they went to. And so I think we're going through right now a pretty significant alteration in terms of the role of doctor and the role of patient. And thank heavens, I think patients are stepping up and saying, you know, I'm not buying what you're selling and I'm gonna find someone else. And I think that could end up being one of those silver linings to a gray cloud. Because I think that in medicine, we've seen this happening, not just for the last three and a half years, we've seen this happening for more than a decade where the powers of big government and big tech and big pharma have literally run the show. And whenever you talk about government, you've always got the insurance arm right there because government insurance have to be very intersecting. And when you talk about big tech, you're talking about media. And uh, it's pretty tough to be a patient these days uh, and feel strongly that you want your moral compass to be the leading moral compass. Mm -hmm. Okay, this one actually is lighthearted. Doctor's handwriting. (laughs) With the addition of so much technology, does the doctor, does the stereotypical doctor handwriting still exist? Because there are a few in my family, um, and I guess I've never seen yours, but right, the doctor handwriting that's scribbled. (laughs) Is that gone? No, it's not gone. In fact, uh, on the sixth investigation by the Board of Medical Practice, I was criticized for having sloppy handwriting uh, because we use worksheet shingles uh, to document our uh, findings with a patient. And so there's a fair amount of handwriting. And we use electronic uh, medical practice system. But um, one of the huge problems with the electronic health record is, one, it's easily hacked into too often. Two, um, electronic health record really wasn't created to improve the quality of healthcare. It was really created by the insurance companies so they could keep tabs on us and they could get the records digitally shunted over so they can do audits. Mm-hmm. In terms of my charting, my charting is done for me to take the best care of that patient I can take care of. Now, in a hospital setting, it's different. In a hospital setting, you may have John Doe in a hospital bed, and at the same moment in time, there are five different folks who need to see that chart. Maybe the radiologist who's reading the MRI, maybe uh, the surgical nurse getting the patient ready for surgery, maybe the floor nurse who just finished doing vital signs and he or she needs to submit that data into the chart. Maybe the primary care doctor, she or he is making rounds. But that's why an electronic health record in a hospital situation can be immensely helpful. But in a clinic, there's only two people who need the chart. 
and it's the patient and the doctor. Mm-hmm. And we put together a plan, we look over what's happened. And so I really think that when you go to a place that still uses paper charts, you have a much better chance of having an actual conversation with your provider versus looking at the back of their head while they're inputting on their iPad or their laptop. Because I've had many patients complain to me that they're leaving a clinic because the doctors didn't talk and the doctors are totally immersed in getting that computer data inputted. And uh, so I don't want to do electronic health record medicine. I'm 69. I'd like to practice for another 10 or 11 years. And I'd like to do it without ever having to do an electronic health record. That might mean that I have to hire a scribe someday. But for now, um, I'm very confident uh, of that. And to your question specifically, my handwriting is not the best. I got a D plus in handwriting in second grade. So I was well on my way at that time to becoming a doctor. I just didn't realize it. Uh, But now I've cleaned up my handwriting. And most of the time, you can read 90, 95% of the words. And uh, we use uh, uh, charting systems that have been uh, used all over the country. Uh, It sort of came off of the T system out of the emergency rooms. Uh, But yeah, in a lighthearted response, I'll just say, (laughs) doctors do have pretty crappy handwriting. And it still is out there because I can't even read doctor's signatures when I see them. I don't know. I I can't tell the difference between uh, uh, Bill Jones or uh, um, some name like Mario Cozzoletti. I wouldn't know the difference. (laughs) And by the way, their signature is signed. Yeah. Uh, Well, that was a a good finale right there. Uh, Once again, where can we find you? Um, on social media. DrScottJensen.com is our website, DrScottJensen.com. If people would like to uh, purchase a book uh, called We've Been Played, Exposing the Triad of Tyranny, they can get it for 20 bucks online. Go to DrScottJensenBook.com, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N-B-O-O-K.com. And uh, I'm, I'm on all the platforms. If you just put Dr. Scott Jensen, whether it's TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, I'll come up. Amazing. Thank you. Once again, absolutely thank you for your time. Your time is obviously way more precious than mine. Oh, no, <laughs> uh, that is all, everybody. I hope you enjoyed. Um, and if you see Dr. Scott Jensen around, thank him for everything that he has done over the last three years and uh, pushing back on a lot of the narratives that all of us were a little skeptical of. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Republican Party of Wright County. You can find us on Twitter at Wright County GOP, or rather, the Wright County GOP. And the handle is at GOP Wright. And you can find us on the website at www.brightgop.org. Thank you.